This is Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed, a series-based podcast focusing on surgical and medical education and featuring expert interviews and practice-changing discussion. Our host is Dr. Kara King, a member of the Cleveland Clinic's section of minimally invasive gynecologic surgery. Dr. King is also the director of benign gynecologic surgery and associate program director of the Cleveland Clinic's MIGS Fellowship. This podcast is a collaboration between MD Edge and the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons. We'll be right back after this message. This podcast is made possible by Boston Scientific. To learn more about Boston Scientific, please visit bostonscientific.com. The opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the featured clinicians and do not necessarily reflect the views of Boston Scientific. So I am thrilled to have Dr. Jonathan Dort on our episode today. Dr. Dort is a general surgeon in Virginia, just outside of D.C., and he practices at Innova Fairfax Hospital, focusing on minimally invasive surgery. Dr. Dort is a director of minimally invasive surgery, as well as the vice chairman for education in the Department of Surgery, as well as the program director of the General Surgery Residency. You have a lot of hats, Dr. Dort. I know. Sounds <laughs> ominous, I agree. Busy man. But thank you so much for joining us today. You have um, such an expertise in the topics that we're talking about today that I really appreciate your time. Thank you. No, happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. So, Dr. Dorton, I didn't know you until I recently read one of your publications on SAGES. So, SAGES, for our GYN listeners, SAGES is the Society of American Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgeons. And I've actually used a lot of your educational resources before on SAGES, including the FUSE module, which is a great electrosurgery curriculum. So, I know outside of just your subspecialty, you have a lot of educational options on your site, which is great. So I was reviewing some of your information about COVID-19, and you were part of the committee who created the SAGE's recommendations regarding the surgical response to the COVID-19 crisis. So thank you so much for your work. Talk to me about who was on your committee and how that document got published. Absolutely. As you mentioned, SAGES is an international organization of minimally invasive surgeons of multiple specialties, and it uh, covers all aspects of the surgical care of, of those patients and those t- everything from new technology to education to quality patient safety. And it's really been a terrific resource for a lot of surgeons. The way I got involved with this specific topic this year, I took over as the chair of the Quality Outcomes and Patient Safety Committee. And when this started to happen, Unlike anything any of us have ever lived through or seen, we recognize the urgency to try to get some sort of set of guidelines, recommendations, advice, anything we could get in the hands of surgeons to best deal with this crisis. And I'll start at the beginning by saying, you know, I'm not an infectious disease specialist and I'm not an epidemiologist. But I'm a surgeon who does a lot of minimally invasive surgical procedures, and so clearly we have an interest in what we should be doing, when we should be doing it, if we should be doing it, and then if we have to, how to most safely do it. And we took those goals, and the committee members, and the committee leadership, and myself, and then eventually through the executive committee and board of SAGES, crafted these basic guidelines to 
put out there for surgeons. Now, since that came out a week ago, you've seen many other guidelines and links and suggestions come out, and you're going to continue to see that because we're all learning about this disease on the fly as this happens. So I will also put a big disclaimer on everything we're about to talk about, which is we don't know a lot about this. We're learning a lot about the disease as this happens and almost on a daily and almost on an hourly basis. And so a lot of the things we say today may need to be amended a few days from now. And I joke, even a few hours from now, it's coming out that quickly. But we're trying to keep up. We're trying to do the safest thing possible, not only for our patients, but for our surgeons and most specifically for our staff in the operating rooms and our learners and everyone else around us who is really, it's not a cliche, who are putting ourselves on the front lines of a war that we can't see. And it really makes it difficult from that end. But what I want to share with you today is what we know, what we don't know, and how strong or weak any recommendation based on that knowledge or lack of knowledge should be to give to your surgeons and to to anyone else who's listening. That's excellent. You know, we're all craving these type of guidelines to come out. I mean, these these discussions, I think, are happening at all hospitals within all subspecialties. And I think taking down the silos of gynecology and general surgery and taking down the silos of of even institutions and even, you know, the United States, everyone pulling together is really how we're going to get ahead of this. So I really appreciate your team's efforts. Thank you. Certainly. Absolutely. I agree. So I think at least the discussion amongst a lot of my minimally invasive GYN surgeons within the OBGYN world is that laparoscopy has unique concerns in regard to surgical risks. Like you said, not only for the patient, but for the entire OR team. And the main risk that, a lot, that has come up a lot within my world is the potential viral transmission during the use of laparoscopy. What does this smoke plume mean and the pneumoperitoneum being released mean? And so can you explain on this concern regarding the, the potential of viral contamination during laparoscopic procedures specifically? Absolutely. The very first thing to start with, and this is in the guidelines, and it'll continue to be in guidelines until this is an incorrect answer, but for now it's correct, and that nobody knows. Uh, There is no data yet to say whether this virus aerosolizes or in what capacity it is present in the operative field for these patients. What these guidelines are based on is previous data that does show certain viral particles to be present specifically in surgical smoke. Hepatitis, HIV, those viruses have been shown to be present in surgical smoke. And so the guidelines will put out with the most abundance of caution, and that is to say, let's just assume that this virus shares those properties. We don't know that for sure. We do know that virus has been found in the respiratory tract, in the nasal passages, It has even been found now in the GI tract, not yet in the urinary tract that I'm aware of, but that was as of yesterday, so who knows if if those reports come out in the last few hours. But we have to assume it's present, and if that presence is there, let's set a group of guidelines and precautions based on that assumption. But, But to be clear... There's no evidence right now that that is true. It is purely based on the the most cautious assumption that we can. That makes complete sense. So in the light of having not enough evidence-based research currently, 
the safest way would be just to assume that indeed it's transferable this way. So that's just the safest way to do this. Absolutely. Let's just assume it's present in those patients and it's going to be released in smoke. It may be released when you staple across the structure. Uh, we have to assume all those things for now. So if it's being released, let's say, when we use electrocautery, if we're assuming that it's in that plume, then abdominal open procedures would assume similar risks in regard to that being transferred because of electrocautery. Would that be the correct assumption? That is correct. What distinguishes it, what separates it, is what happens when you release the pneumoperitoneum. And that can happen at many stages and in many different ways. If you've created smoke that's now in the abdomen under pressure and you either have a leak around your port or when you go to desufflate or if you go to remove a specimen, all those things now release those contents under pressure into the room with no filtration between that release and the humans in the room. And that's where most of these guidelines have to start looking at the intervention. That makes sense. And in the hysterectomy world, we connect the outside to the inside routinely with colpotomy, right? Like that's part of our procedure when we take the cervix out. So you can ask a number of medical students and residents sitting between the legs, manipulating the uterus, getting that right in their face during Absolutely. colpotomy. So this is, this is a serious concern for us as well. So again, with the premise of being as safe as we can, what are your thoughts about testing surgical patients for COVID before surgery? Should that be something we should be doing universally? Wouldn't it be great if we could do it for everyone in a rapid test with reliable results? I think we're all waiting for that moment. So my answer is theoretical. Yeah, absolutely. It would be fantastic if everyone got tested. The CDC, WHO, everyone has their guidelines based on history, based on exposure, based on symptoms, based on physical findings. People with fevers who are asymptomatic, that is becoming a large part of this discussion as well. So even those recommendations seem to be morphing a little bit from day to day, but those are the patients who are falling under the should test them. My personal opinion, I'm not from the CDC or the NIH or the WHO, is that if possible, all surgical patients should be tested because now you're in a, an environment where droplets are being spread with velocity at healthcare workers. And to me, that should be right on that list with international travel and exposure to other potentially positive people. That seems like such a high-risk environment that when it becomes available, I would certainly put that at the top of the list. I'm completely in your camp. Once we have the resources, I'm hoping that at one point we'll have the resources for reliable testing and timely results, right, that we should be testing all patients. Because you're right, it's the entire operating room theater that's being impacted. It's the entire team. And so you can wipe out entire teams really easily if we're not careful. So along those lines, the fact that we don't have the resources right now, the fact that we don't have reliable testing currently, should we still be offering laparoscopic procedures? That is the question of the day, and I can tell you that if you ask different surgeons, you'll get different answers. What I think the consensus answer is, and what you see in Sages and in other places, is that you have to weigh those risks we just talked about against the benefits that a laparoscopic procedure would afford your patient versus an open procedure. And we're talking about more than just the standard benefits of minimally invasive surgery. We all know what those are. But if you have a hospital whose beds are already taxed by an overflow of patients, 
and a laparoscopic procedure will send a patient home in a day rather than a week of using a hospital bed, that really has to play into this decision where if you just treat it well and go over some of the specific things in the operating room I think we're going to cover to minimize that risk, then maybe the use of laparoscopy, the benefit because of those reasons, do outweigh the risk that you can manage in the operating room. I don't think it's an absolute contraindication. I think you have to just use judgment about that. All right. So if we're still going to be offering laparoscopic surgery, which I agree, I mean, it's best for our patients, that means that we have to do measures to protect our operating room team. So talk to me about your opinions regarding this personal protective equipment. What exactly should we be utilizing in the operating room? I think that's a source of heavy discussion in every institution right now, and it's based on several things which are what works, what you have available to you, and the supply that is expected over the long term. Now, I think some of those things are secondary. First and foremost, you have to protect your team. If you're asking them to go into this environment, you have to do your best to protect this team. The current recommendations are that COVID-positive patients and patients under investigation, patients with either symptoms, findings, or history that put them in a high-risk category should be treated with certain precautions and that maybe those precautions don't translate to patients outside of that category. As we discussed previously, I think you could make a very strong argument to say that everyone should be treated as if they're positive. There's certainly data out there to show that the large percentage of people with this disease who are asymptomatic and in an environment with body fluids going under velocity, I think you can't be faulted. And if you have the supply and you have the leadership to say so, I don't think you can be faulted for treating every patient as if they're high risk or if they're positive and utilizing these measures. The measures have to start with the personal protective equipment of the people in the room. We have adopted a policy, and I I think this is a reasonable recommendation for everyone, that only essential personnel should be in the room. We all dedicate large portions of our lives to the education of the learners behind us, but that mission may have to take a back seat to minimizing exposure in both directions and only having essential personnel. One of the most high-risk moments of an operation is intubation and extubation, and that needs to occur with complete shielding of the anesthesia team and with minimal personnel that are only very necessary critical need personnel in the room that those events occur. Negative pressure rooms have been talked about as being necessary for this, certainly if you know you have a COVID-positive patient, and if it's an endoscopic procedure, meaning an external flexible instrument procedure, especially in the upper area, which I realize doesn't apply as much to your audience, but that really has to be a critical part of this. Full gowning, N95 masks at least, that is what is most abundantly available to everyone, and that is what is on the current recommendation list for protection. But I know that the increasing concern that the N95s may not provide that complete protection is starting to surface. I've heard some reports, and I know that some of the poor outcomes 
with healthcare personnel in other countries or in personnel who had full gear and were protected all the time. And so it's, it's not 100% the way it is right now. The other part of this is what happens during the procedure if you have to use, let's just take laparoscopy because that's what most of our audience is interested in. So just visualize a viral present pneumoperitoneum under pressure and every move you make should be with that in mind. So if you have any sort of filtration system, specifically the ultra-low filtration that captures the 0.01 micron, utilize that. There are a bunch of different brands that make that. I don't think any one of them works any better than the other. Just make sure the size is appropriate. It should desufflate through one port, desufflate through the filtration through one port, minimize the use of smoke creation. Anything you can do with silk is preferable to anything you can do with electro surgical instruments, whether it's ultrasonic or whether it's standard. If you have to retrieve a specimen, desufflate first through the filtration to evacuate the pneumoperitoneum and then retrieve your specimen. If you're putting in a hand port to do so, hand ports leak like crazy, do the same thing, desufflate, put it in, retrieve. Don't try to manipulate with things under pressure especially if you've used any sort of electrosurgical instrument, but even if you haven't, because even that is an unknown as to what type of viral load is present. Leaving any sort of drain in the pelvis is a two-way street, and just be mindful of that. I would put that as an absolute, only if necessary. Standard suction in a room is not filtered. I mean, you have to check your room and your institution. Everybody's a little different. But don't assume that if you just take the standard suction and suction smoke that it's going through a filter. It could very easily just be recirculated airplane style back into the rest of the facility or the room. So don't, don't use the standard suction for that. My goodness. I just think about like six months ago, right? And me not thinking about any of these things. I mean, just operating. I mean, think about all the times I'm leaking pneumo, like a lot, right? I like open ports so I can see. I'm like doing all the things you're talking about. If I tie down extracorporeally through my 10 port, I'm leaking around my knot pusher. If I'm, I mean, all the things you're talking about. I love my suction irrigator. It's my favorite instrument. So this really drastically changes the way that we should be thinking in the operating room. It is. It's things we never think about, but have to think about now. And it begs the next part of this, which is really only put people in the operating room who absolutely, absolutely have to be there. There have been recent calls from different societies, and I'm sure your society did the same, of banning elective cases and the subsequent conversation of what is an elective case exactly. And that conversation is in full bloom in most OBGYN departments. And we have taken on a very strict interpretation of that. You know, Like you, we'll, we'll operate for bleeding, we'll operate for perforation, we'll operate for obstruction or infection or anything that's life-threatening. And then the next big issue is in the cancer world, how long can you delay things? I think the Society of Surgical Oncology just put out a whole set of guidelines for different cancer types, and no delay is ever acceptable, but in the reasonable triage versus this risk, they at least started to put out some guidelines for that, and we're trying to adhere to those guidelines as well. Exactly. Yeah, in the GUN world, it's a lot of ectopic pregnancies, torsions, right? Those are things that can't wait. 
C-sections. People don't like to wait for that. <laughs> so what are you using now for your mask in the operating room? Are you using, let's just say with somebody who is unknown COVID patient, what are you using for your masks? There was a ongoing discussions to at least get the PAPRs for the anesthesiologists. Our institution is on the up curve. We're not, I hear stories out of New York and Seattle and New Orleans and it sounds just unimaginable. We've only had a handful of positive patients so far. We haven't had the situation yet where we've had to operate on a known COVID positive patient. I'm sure we have, I, just that we don't know. And I think over the next 10 to 14 days, none of us are going to be able to say that anymore. I think it's the numbers. We're all going to hit that part of the curve. So we're preparing now. We're sticking very strictly to CDC guidelines, which mandates at least the N95, the face shield, the full donning of gown and gloves. And there's a very specific way in order to don and take those off so that you're not touching the mask, you're not touching the exposed areas. But we're in the middle of ongoing conversations to look at our supply, look at our anticipated needs and our personnel to switch to the positive PAPR masks and equipment. Yeah. Same with us. In Northeast Ohio, we're looking to peak, we think, in about two and a half weeks. So we're still on the upswing. We have quite a few patients here admitted at the clinic. Uh, about half of them are in intensive care. But me personally, I haven't operated on somebody that, with a known COVID positive yet. But I, again, I'm sure I probably have. I just didn't know at the time. And I just saw on your site that you guys recently put up instructions about how to safely reuse your N95. I thought that was really nice. That was creative. Uh, you know, in times of stress, people become more innovative. And I, I appreciate you guys putting that out there for us to reference and hopefully recycle some of the masks that are out there. Absolutely. I think we're going to have to. And, uh, you know, it, it gives instructions with heating and just with air drying and the time frame. So I think it's a worthwhile thing to, to go look at. And these are not endless supplies. Right. And for my listeners to the podcast, I'll have all of these links in our show notes so everyone can reference these afterwards. So I wanted to ask you about your Coronavirus Global Surgical Collaborative. I was just looking that up off your site recently as well. It looks like an amazing opportunity for, again, a global collaboration regarding what's working, what's not working, and get some real evidence-based material out there. Can you expand on that a little bit? This was people much smarter and, and more prescient than me immediately came up with this idea. Uh, and it is an international study collaborative on the surgical experience of, of COVID-positive patients. I believe it's through the NIHR. There is a website. It is globalsurge.org slash COVID surge. And there are two studies. Uh, there's a cancer study and a regular cohort for non-cancer patients. And it is a place where you can register your institution, and essentially every patient you operate on that is COVID-19 positive, it asks you to enter data elements about the specifics of the patient and then the outcomes related to that, and hoping to get this very quick and very large international registry that can teach us more than almost anything else that we're getting right now, which is really based just on anecdotal experiences. That's awesome. I just registered our institution today. I'll definitely get that out there within the OBGYN community as well, because gynecology definitely falls within all of this as well. So I'll make sure to spread the word within my world, too. That's great. That's great. We'll be right back after this message. Today's episode is brought to you by MedJobNetwork.com. 
Ready to start your career in your dream location? Looking to expand your skills in a dynamic new practice setting? Start your search today at medjobnetwork.com. Medjobnetwork.com sorts thousands of physician job opportunities in every specialty and all 50 states. Visit us once, create a profile, then let our technology bring the right jobs to you. There's no need to search again and again. MedJobNetwork.com does all the work for you. It's time to take that next step. There's a great new career opportunity waiting for you at MedJobNetwork.com. So I want to switch gears just a bit and take your program director knowledge as well. I'm so thrilled that you also wear this hat. I also have a passion for surgical education. And so I'd love just to hear about how you guys are handling safety for your residents, as well as a shift in the education that you're providing for them. So it looks like you guys have six residents per year. Is that right? Correct. Yes. And so what kind of safety measures are you guys putting in place now for your residents? Are you shifting their schedules a bit or what does that look like? We've done several measures trying to stay in front of this, as I'm sure with you and everyone listening, the safety of our residents and our our learners are just of utmost importance to us. On a programmatic level, we've gotten rid of the traditional services, and that really was in line with the reduction of all the elective procedures, which a lot of those services pertain to. And we've gone to a rotating, compartmentalized call schedule for urgent and emergent procedures. Uh, which every 72 hours, we, we split our 30 residents into three teams, and every 72 hours, each of those teams rotate. And we have intern coverage for ward calls, we have junior coverage for ICU and backup consult call, and mid-year coverage for consult call, and we have fourth and fifth years for the trauma responses and for standard chief resident call. And we have a few what we call float positions, which are the first backups to fill rooms for cases that are needed or to fill spaces for residents who are either ill, quarantined, or fall out of the rotation. And it compartmentalizes. So one team is on, one team serves as the backup to that team, and then the third team is off. And this way we keep wellness, we keep hours, which are still required by ACGME regulations, and we minimize the impact that if there's one patient that a lot of people get exposed to, your entire residency isn't gone for quarantine. And this, at least, is going to maximize their experience as far as they're still taking care of the patients that are going to be here. So programmatically doing that, we are setting up, we've converted, we stopped our regular didactic schedule. We are restarting. We've, we've gotten Zoom and are, are educating people how to do that. So next week, we're going to restart episodic grand rounds and didactic sessions that we're going to record so that people can watch it when it is convenient for them. We have not restarted our M&M session because of a lot of fears of confidentiality and hacking into systems. So if anyone has any great ideas for that, we are open to suggestions for that. As far as protecting them in the operating room, uh, we just I told them if they don't already have an obsessive compulsive disorder to develop one and just assume that every surface you touch, every person you see, maintain your PPE at all times. Just like your residents, they are going into, not necessarily even in operating rooms, but just in exam rooms and and in the emergency room, they are in situations where 
body fluids are coming at them, even under just physical examination areas, and that they just have to treat it as if they do a procedure. We've additionally added that we have, just like we do in the operating room, the critical personnel only for rounds. Only decision makers go in the patient's rooms. Everyone else stays outside. We do not send residents into the pre-op area anymore. It is against every educational cell I own to not have them go meet their patient before an operation. But in this case, nobody needs the double exposure. So we're adding things you just wouldn't think but have to stop and think to minimize exposure, and, and we're trying to add protection on that level as well. Those are really great suggestions to apply to all residencies, just like you said. Are you guys engaging in any telehealth visits? Do, do you guys do any virtual visits? We just set that up for our faculty. It's not as straightforward as it sounds, and there are still some things we're working out with that. We have not done it for our residents. Now, the RRC has allowed us to do it for our residents. They encourage that. Part of this reorganization of our resident schedules has been to pull them from the clinics to minimize those exposures. So as of now, they're just not in a position where they're doing that. This may evolve. We have nothing against it. We have the same technology for them as we do the faculty. And we may get up to a point with faculty usage, especially as faculty start to fall off and you and I will be running ventilators, which is a really scary thought on both our ends. But residents may have to take up and start doing more of those communications with patients and things like that. Yeah, we recently just started utilizing our residents for telehealth. We're lucky at the clinic, right? The attendings have been doing televisits for a while, but we recently just got our residents up and running. And overall, they really like it. It's, they have a little bit more autonomy. You know, they're doing their own televisits, and then they run it by us, and then we, if there's any changes, they call the patient back. But it's an interesting way to integrate them into the virtual world. So I'm curious to hear how it turns out for you guys. Yeah, and I agree. And, you know, once this all settles down a little bit and we achieve some reasonable level of new normalcy, I don't think it's a bad idea, especially for patients who have difficult transportation issues or have symptoms of upper respiratory reasons they can't make it to their visits. I think we should keep a lot of these things in place. Right. It's like the silver lining of us being pushed to do things virtually. You're kind of feeling out, well, maybe this could be done virtually in in like the real world. So the silver lining of it, right? So my last question for you is a topic that's been coming up a lot within the GME world about the academic calendar starting on July 1, right? So, I mean, realistically, this could be still right in the middle of this pandemic. And from a public health standpoint, having thousands of people trying to relocate is exactly against what we're trying to achieve right now with social distancing. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts about pushing back the July 1 start date? you think that's something we should be looking into or what's your opinion on that? It's an interesting thought. And if we're still having to communicate like this 90 days from now, it almost would have to happen. How do you get people to go into their programs with that amount of necessary interaction that would precede it? It's a very interesting thought. I don't claim to have expertise on the finances that would be around having to sponsor something like that. Many medical schools have already graduated their students and said, see ya. We, as their destinations in July, are now the only homes they have. I think it has to be on the long list of things that we never would have thought of before but have to be on the table now because we may very well be dealing with this for a long time. I absolutely agree. And that's when I think we really look at the national level, right, to help 
them provide guidance for all of us, not necessarily at an institution level, but, you know, for all residencies. Yeah, and I think they've been, they've been doing a good job, don't you think, with GME and ACGME all giving us really great guidelines on how to navigate this with our trainees? They really have. They've been on top of this, uh, our board and the ACGME as well, of outlining. It was very beneficial that they separated different levels of engagement for learners, depending on where you are with your hospital, and going with those guidelines has made it a little bit more straightforward and probably saved them on a lot of phone calls with questions of what they should be doing. Exactly right. <clears throat> well, I think I've taken up enough of your time, Dr. Dort. Thank you so much for talking with us this afternoon. It's been really instrumental in how you know we can work together to move forward um, against this pandemic. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Thank you for doing all the great work that you're doing with this. Of, of course, yeah. We'll try to touch base in a couple of weeks when things will probably look much, much different. I hope um, so. I hope so. <laughs> And that's all for this episode of Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed. Join us next episode for more expert insights and perspectives. From all of us at MD Edge and the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, thanks for listening.